Uh, Would you join with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have given us a good Savior, a great and perfect Savior who lives now to plead for us. And Lord, we are, we are grateful that his prayers are always answered. So Lord, I pray that today, uh, right now in this service, as we move to the preaching of your word, where the gospel is now in its native language, which is preaching, heralding, announcing as news, because it is news. Lord, that we would hear it as the good news that it is, and that we would be turned. That people who do not yet know you would be saved by trusting in the gospel. And those who know you would be Uh, corrected and comforted and strengthened. We pray that Christ would be glorified and that that would be our great joy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So last week, if you have your Bibles, by the way, turn to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. Last week, we looked in on Isaiah the prophet's conversations with the king of Jerusalem. Remember what the title of the king of Jerusalem is? The title? The son of... Son of David, yeah. So we're listening into these conversations between Isaiah the prophet, the man who inherited David's throne, King Ahaz is his name. See, David had reigned about 300 years earlier, and King Ahaz, his descendant, he now gets to be called Son of David. Two armies had teamed up, the army of Syria and the army of the rebel nation that's called Israel. This is the the 10 tribes who rebelled against the son of David. And they were called Israel. And so Israel's army and Syria's army were trying to put Jerusalem under siege. They're having a bit of a time doing it, but it looks like they were about to put it under siege. And instead of trusting in God's promises to David, to Israel, to Jerusalem, and to Ahaz, instead of trusting in God's promises to Ahaz, Instead of treating God as king of kings, Ahaz chose the king of Assyria, Assyria, to trust, to swear allegiance to as the king of kings. And through Isaiah, the Lord told Ahaz that this man, the king of Assyria, would not be his savior, but would destroy as Ahaz's enemies and would also destroy Ahaz. And his people. Now, Isaiah's children were giving special names. And the things which God prophesied and even proved by the events of their lives of these poor children with terrible names. You remember their names. So, before Mayor Shalal Hashbaz was able to say mom and dad, before he was able to know right and wrong and eat solid food, those enemy kings would be destroyed by Assyria. That's a promise of God. There's this kid, before he's this age, this is going to happen. Also, the nations, uh, these nations would be destroyed within 65 years. Isaiah's other son, Sher Jashub, had a name that meant a remnant will return. This promise that God would crush the people down to the point where they were only a remnant. You remember what Amos the prophet prophesied at the same time? Remember what he, how he described how small and insignificant that remnant would be? A piece of a lamb's ear rescued from the mouth of a lion. So this was the terrible judgments that God gave through the names of Isaiah's poor kids. Judgment from God was coming on God's people. This was promised. Destruction and exile. At the hands of the wicked emperor that they trusted and feared more than they feared God. God would be merciful and he would spare a remnant. Another child was prophesied in that group of children prophecies with special names. And this guy's name was Emmanuel. There, a good name. And he would be born to a virgin. Mershel Hashbaz seems to be the first installment of that prophecy, kind of proving that that prophecy would one day come true. But they're still waiting for that child to be born. And those who were waiting for Emmanuel, the Messiah, the great son of David, there to look up to the Lord in reverence and trust and love. They're going to cling to the word of God. While all the people around them are going to try to cling to horoscopes and, and circumstances and all kinds of, uh, of trying to control and ways of trying to control and know the future. 
special words from God. These guys are going to cling just to the word of God. While the people around them, if they're going to look up and think about God and the Messiah, they're only going to do that to curse God and get angry with him. But that remnant that's waiting for Emmanuel, huddled together, holding onto the word of God, is going to look up to God with reverence and trust and confidence. He will keep his promises. And so to this remnant, God speaks words of hope and light about the coming Messiah. It is good that Isaiah 9 follows Isaiah 7 and 8. So let's, we get to read Isaiah 9. Maybe it's a familiar passage to you. I think it is. Uh, this is our first point, by the way. The light of the gospel follows darkness. Isaiah 9, first two verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Let's stop there for a minute. The light of the gospel follows darkness. First, I want you to notice that God's promise of hope is not a promise that evil will not happen. Did you notice that? Isaiah's not taking back his, his prophecy of woe and doom. He's not. He's not taking it back. He's not saying darkness isn't real. He's not saying judgment isn't coming. Light comes into the darkness, but not instead of the darkness. God's mercy and gospel comes to a damned people. Not to holy people. Not to people who are not facing damnation and judgment, but his mercy and his gospel comes to people who are in the darkness, facing judgment and the wrath of God. But I want you to notice here that the Lord actually writes these promises with events. Last time we saw the Lord writes these promises into names, the names of these poor children who have terrible names. He's writing these promises into names, into these children's names. And then even the events of their lives prove that God keeps his promise. Now we're going to see he keeps these promises. He writes these promises with events, not just with words. So the first places to fall to Assyria, right? That coming king that they trusted as their savior, but it would be their destruction. The first places to fall to Assyria were the lands of Zebulun, the, the tribes, the, the lands of Zebulun, Naphtali, and in Galilee. So the way of the sea was this corridor of land between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. The first to become provinces of the Assyrian Empire would have been these provinces, these or these, these uh, tribes. Darkness, you could say, came from that direction. Where did the darkness of God's judgment come? It came from that direction. Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee. The way of the sea. And I want you to notice that it says he brought into contempt. Did you see that in verse 1? In the former time, he brought into contempt the land. So it's saying God did this. He used the king of Assyria as, the, as a tool in his hand, but it was a tool of God's judgment. God is going to bring judgment. But light, he says, is going to come from the same direction. Israel's going to have to look to the same direction for the light to come, that they look to see the darkness of God's judgment coming. Now, who is the Emmanuel child? Who is this child that was born to a virgin? What's his name? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and he would come 700-ish years later. He is God who took on flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He added a human body and a human soul to himself. He is the light of the gospel. He is the light come from God. Now, I have a question. Where was Jesus born? Where in Israel was he born? What city? Bethlehem. Okay, we're not quite there yet because Bethlehem is not in the land of Zebulun. Naphtali is not part of the way of the sea. It's not part of Galilee. But a baby is there. A baby is alive before it's born. Am I right? So when the angel Gabriel came to the land of Israel, to announce the birth before it happened, 
that, that the, the Messiah would be conceived of a virgin. Where did he go? Oh, he went to Galilee. Where did he go? He went to a, a virgin named Mary in the land of Galilee to a town called Nazareth. And so the Messiah actually did come from Nazareth. This is where he entered the world because he became a baby before he was born. He was a baby when he traveled with his mom in her womb through the land of Israel to Bethlehem. He was there and they returned there after spending some time in Egypt. They returned where? They returned to Nazareth, to the land of Galilee, where he would spend 30 years of very ordinary, boring life. Hidden. They're called his hidden years, actually. Because what is he doing? He's, he's living an ordinary life that would count for us before his public ministry. And so where did he come from when the light shone publicly? Where did he come? He came from Galilee. The same location that the judgment of God came from, the light of the gospel actually came from. This is why it's important that he was born in Bethlehem as the son of David, but he came from Galilee. That's where he first would have shined. In John 1, John calls Jesus the light. In John chapter 8, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. Now, it's very important that he says light of the world, not just light of Israel. In fact, if you look at our, our uh, verses here in, in uh, chapter uh, one, verse, uh, verse, verse, or chapter nine, verse one, it says the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You know, this never before that is Galilee called Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. This is the first time. And he says in the latter time. So what this prophecy is saying is that the light from God would come through Galilee and it would be not just the light to the Jews, but it would be to the light, the light to the nations, all peoples. He's saying that this would come, the light would come to the remnant, and God would have the remnant would be a people of all peoples, not just the people of Israel. Dear church, dear friends, we must remember that the light comes to those in darkness. We need to remember this. We need to remember this and be reminded of this very often. And there's, there's lots of ways, but I'm going to pick three ways in which we need to be reminded of this, that the scripture reminds us of this. Not just I think we need to be, but there's three ways in which scripture repeatedly pastors us to remember that light comes to those in darkness. First, the first is that Christ comes not to declare there is no darkness. That's the first one. Christ did not say, he did not come to declare, there is no darkness. It's just your imagination. He's not saying there is no condemnation from God. He's not saying there is no hell. He's not saying there is no punishment or no wrath of God. He comes to make, in fact, this very clear. The good news of Christ's gospel follows the bad news. The bad news that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that we face the wrath of God. We stand condemned before a holy God, every single one of us. Our sin will condemn us to hell if we were to receive the wrath of God that we deserve. We will all face God's judgment and no one would survive it because we are all sinners. We've all broken God's commands. Every single one of us has broken God's commands in our thoughts, in our desires, in our words, in our actions. Every single one of us. And without that truth, the gospel of Christ will make no sense. So a church that will not preach that darkness, will not teach that darkness, will not very long preach the light of the gospel. It won't happen. So that's the first one. First reason we need to remember that, that darkness, or that light comes after darkness. The second is this. The, the gospel is offered only to guilty people. The gospel is offered only to guilty people. Those are the only people who can receive the gospel is guilty people. Those who walk in darkness. Jesus, the light of the world, he said to the leaders of Israel that he had come for sinners. And he said, he, he gave the illustration. He said, it's only the sick that are in need of a physician, not the well. 
And so these leaders envisioned a salvation that was for the better people, for the good people, the worthy people, especially the worthy people of Israel. And of course, that meant them. They were the good people of the good nation. And so the Messiah was coming for them. And Jesus said, this is not true because they too were guilty of the wrath of God and would suffer it in hell. And they stood in need of a savior and he was standing right in front of them. Now you might, you may be like the fool, like the Pharisees who thinks that Christ or God is yours We sang that song, Christ is mine forevermore. You might be a fool like the Pharisees who think that the Messiah is yours because you are better. Or perhaps you are better than most people. Or maybe better than should be expected of you given the circumstances. Or better than you used to be. If that's true, then Christ is not yours. At least not yet. Perhaps unlike the Pharisees, You think that you are too sinful for Christ to save you. That your sin is too great, that you have sinned too much. The kinds of sins that you have sinned, those things are not savable. Christ maybe needs you to clean yourself up again, to get a little more more, uh, more of the dirt off so that he can be able to save you. Waiting till you have showed improvement. But you are making the same mistake as the Pharisees. And you should not make that mistake. Christ died for enemies. He died for those who were in darkness. He died for those who were children of wrath. The third reason that the Bible reminds us that light comes after darkness, post-tenebrex lux, it reminds us that those who are in anguish and contempt and gloom It is those people who will be made glorious. We need to remember that glory follows suffering. Glory follows suffering. We need to be reminded of this very, very often. The remnant, that that group of people who will be saved by the Messiah, by the Emmanuel, they will be saved, but they will first walk through trials. And they will first walk through gloom. And they will first walk through suffering. And it won't mean that they don't belong to him. If you are going through suffering or gloom or anguish, if you feel the darkness of the world pressing in on you, it is no sign that you do not belong to God. If you feel it, not just you notice it, but you feel it. If it gives you distress, that is no sign that you do not belong to Christ. In fact, Peter says God uses this suffering and darkness He uses it to prove those who are his. Because despite the suffering, despite the gloom, and despite the darkness, that is mixed in with with gladness. Despite it, they cling to the gospel and they say, Christ is mine and I will wait for him. Glory follows suffering. Do not believe the lies that Christianity saves you from sorrow in this life. Dear friends, it saves you through sorrow. Christ did not come right now to spare us from trials, but to keep us through trials. And that's how he proves he is a faithful savior and how he proves that you are weak, but he is strong. Our second point. Our second point is this. The gospel is a multiplication of the enjoyment of, of God, a multiplication of the enjoyment of God. Salvation is not merely non-punishment. Now that's good. Non-punishment is great. People who face the wrath of God and now no longer are facing the wrath of God. That's pretty good. But it is actually much greater than that. I wonder if you noticed that. It is a multiplication of joy. Let's look at verse 3, Isaiah 9, 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Thus far, God's word. I wonder if you notice the two, the two types of joy, which Emmanuel, which the great son of David, the Messiah, that the, the two types of joy that the Messiah would be, it would be like. The first is as joy of the harvest, the joy of food. 
The joy of waiting for crops to grow and mature and hoping and praying that the weather would be favorable and then be able to take the crop off the field. It's safe. It's in. The crops are in. Otherwise, up until that point, it would be potential. It could easily be lost. But it's now in. Now, that's particularly joyous if you've had a very hard year or the previous year was very hard after a year of famine. And now to have plenty to eat and be satisfied, to have energy to do the things you need to do, and even have energy to do the things you want to do and enjoy doing. And in the Old Testament, feasts were commanded by God at times of harvest, and they were celebrations to be able to properly express and enjoy joy. So we have that, the joy as of joy of the harvest. The second is not exactly the same, but It is as dividing spoil. This is the kind of celebration that you would have after an enemy comes to destroy you. They tell you they want to kill you. They tell you they want to oppress you. They tell you they want to crush you. And they bring in much might and wealth to be able to do that. And then they are destroyed and they flee and they leave you all that might and wealth. And you get to come into their camp and plunder it. That's the kind of joy that they're talking about. And there is a particular event that is recorded in the Old Testament for us where this is most clear, most clear. The city, the capital city of Israel was under siege. Years, over a hundred years earlier, the capital city of Israel was under siege, the city of Samaria. And the prophet had prophesied, these people were starving to death, nothing left, absolutely nothing left, doing horrendous things because they were so hungry And the prophet of the Lord prophesied, tomorrow we will be eating lots of food. There'll be lots of it. And no one believed this prophet. The mighty Syrian army was surrounding them. And they had lots of stuff to empower them to be able to crush the people of Israel. And there were four lepers, four men with leprosy who were outside of the city because they were unclean. They couldn't be in the camp, right? And these men weren't getting any more food from inside the camp anymore. Nobody is sending them food. They're about to die. And then, so one of them says, look, there's food. There's not food inside, but there is food outside those camps outside of our enemies. Now, why don't we go there and ask them for food? See if they're going to show mercy on us. They're like, they they, they could kill us, but we're going to die today anyways of starvation. So we actually have nothing to lose. So they get the courage up and they walk to the camp. And what do they find? The camp's empty. The camp is absolutely empty. In the middle of the the night, the Lord had come to the camp and scared those men away. They fled and they didn't even take any of their stuff with them. They just fled and they left so much provision. They had so much food and riches. And so these men, they feasted and they, they stuffed their faces until they were full and they grabbed the gold and the silver and they're about to like hide it under their tents and bury it and they their conscience got the best of them. And they said, how can we keep this to ourselves? Today is a day of good news. What is good news in the Bible? Good news is gospel. And so they shared the news with the people of the city and the feast was shared with incredible joy with the people of the city. And so the, the joy that the, that the light is going to bring, that Jesus is going to bring, is like that. It is like that. Dear brothers and sisters and unbelieving guests, Jesus came not only to spare you from judgment, but to give you great joy. I wonder if you notice the kind of joy that it actually is. It says it is like these things, but what kind of joy is it actually? What does it say in verse 3? They rejoice before you. That's actually getting at, they rejoice in your presence. They rejoice because of your presence. What are they enjoying? They're not enjoying the food and they're not enjoying plunder. What are they enjoying? What is the actual gift they're enjoying? That is their true joy. God. This idea of before you and in your presence is like being in the holy of holies, being with God, being in his presence. Friends, every single joy that you have ever experienced is a good gift from God. Unless perhaps it's enjoying watching the, the, the Rough Riders win. That is not from God. Every other good joy is from him. 
but it, it, it pales in comparison to true joy. God says in Psalm 19 that in your presence is the fullness of joy. I imagine that each one of us has experienced joy, a measure of joy here, and a measure of sorrow. Whether that be romantic pleasure or getting a good job or getting a new home or hearing that a loved one has been spared from sickness. Those are measures of joy. Think about how sweet, the sweetest bit of joy you've ever had was. Now think about fullness. You can't. You cannot think about fullness of joy. The presence and having God as your father, as your as your redeemer, as your possession. He belongs to you. You belong to him. There is nothing that is greater than that joy. In fact, that is, that is the first lie that was told to Adam and Eve was that there is greater joy than to be found than to have God. What a foolish thing to believe. All of these joys pale in comparison and we treat them as if they are the joy that can satisfy now, God will give us these good joys, and he does, and he is gracious even to those who hate him. He causes the rain to fall on the wicked and also on the righteous. But let us not be fools to think that that is the satisfying joy. Let's enjoy those things, but use them to enjoy God, to turn and say, God, this is a gift from you. If, you, if a young man gives a gift to his fiance. That gift is for her joy, but I tell you, it's also, he wants her to enjoy him. He wants her to know that the relationship with him is enjoyable. He's trying to make that relationship with, with, with him enjoyable. So too with a parent giving a gift to a child. Yes, they're interested in that child's joy, but they want that relationship. They want them to enjoy being my son or my daughter. And this is the kind, this is the, the way that the Lord gives gifts to his people. He wants to make, have you enjoy him. And this is how we avoid things like idolatry and fearing man and fearing bankruptcy and fearing pain and all of those things. And because the joy of the Lord cannot be taken from those who belong to the Lord. And so whatever gifts he gives us, we enjoy, but we make sure that we're enjoying him as well, enjoying the gift and not, or giving the, enjoying the gift rather than just the giver. If we understood how good God is and how sweet and wise and beautiful and wonderful he is, we would not be tempted to treat the other things of the world like idols. God has not sent Jesus just to spare us from punishment. That is true. But he has sent Jesus so that we would have fullness Fullness, immeasurable joy. The nation, though, he says, is also multiplied. Did you notice that? The nation, the remnant that receives joy from Emmanuel, it is multiplied. And boy, it needed to be that because it shrunk, right? Lamb's ear, piece of a lamb's ear. It has been shrunk to quite a remnant. And, and so we already know that where is this, this multiplication is going to come from? It's going to come from within the people of Israel. He's going to increase that remnant. But then he's also going to add people from the nations. Remember Galilee in the last days? When the Messiah comes, it's going to be called Galilee of the nations. Christ is the light of the world. So the gospel has now gone to many hundreds of people groups. And it has been believed adding to the people of God. He is increasing and increasing and increasing his people every single day as the gospel, as the light of the gospel goes into the world. And there are more types of people who have been spared from wrath, but don't forget, it's also there's more types of people who are now enjoying God, have the joy of God's love. And both those pictures that, that are given here of, of harvest and of spoil. Both paint a picture of walking into a field or a battlefield that you have not worked for, but you just walk in after the harvest is in and after the battle is won. 
that joy is inexpressible. And it is ours because Emmanuel deserves it. Number three, point three, is the gospel brings a different reality and not just a different attitude. The gospel brings a different reality and not just a different attitude. It's not just merely a new attitude where nothing changes, but you just see things differently. You know, you used to be a glass half full person, but now I've got the joy of being a, a, glass, a glass half empty. Now I'm a glass half full person. Yeah, you know how it is. No, and this is not that kind of joy. You have joy because something has actually happened. The circumstance has actually changed. This joy is rooted in reality, not merely a new perspective on reality. You're not just becoming, you know, I'm just more of a joyful person now. That's not what's going on. We'll see this in uh, chapter 9, 4, and 5. You got the word for here, right? He's giving you the blessing. And then at the beginning of verse 4, he says, for, this is because. Why do they have this joy? Because something happened. For. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We'll stop there. What is the day of Midian? Anybody know? I'm sure there's some kids who remember that Bible story, the day of Midian. You might even call it the day of Gideon. You may have heard of Gideon, one of these famous judges of God's people that came to rescue them is before Israel had kings. And so Midian, this enemy nation, is oppressing Israel. And God calls Gideon to rescue them. Remember Gideon's hiding when he's threshing. He's, uh, he's, he's uh, doing this, the harvest work, right? And he's hiding. And God says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And he doesn't look like a mighty warrior. That guy. And so Gideon is called to be the judge and the rescuer of God's people. And so he's to assemble an army. So he assembles an army to fight against the, the, uh, the nation of, of Midian to protect them from the Midianites. And the army's too big. So this army is just way too big. And, then, and, and God says, you got to cut these people down. And so they send a whole bunch of the soldiers away. And again, it's still too big. And so Gideon then is told by God to face an army of over 100,000 men with a tiny little army of just a few hundred. And so Gideon and his men in the middle of the night, they surrounded the camp of the Midianites. Do you remember this? And they all had torches. Well, that would have given away their position. So what did they do? They covered the torches with jars, right? And they had trumpets. And at Gideon's, at Gideon's sign, they were to smash the pots. All the light now shines and to blow the trumpets and they scare the Midianites. And that's exactly what happened. God used Gideon to, to give a great battle over the Midianites. It wasn't just a great victory over the Midianites. It was not just a new perspective that Israel had after that day. You know, we're being oppressed and, and, uh, and we're being punished by God for our sin because they were actually, the Midianites were a punishment for the sin of the people. Uh, but now we just have a better outlook. It's not true. They were actually rescued from that enemy. An actual victory was actually won, which actually changed the status of God's people. God brought victory to Israel from the hand of Midian. And he's saying the victory that gives this joy is going to be like that. Not just a new perspective, something accomplished. So dear friends, I want you to know this, that the gospel is not just merely a new attitude of joy, but it is a new reality to enjoy. What do I mean by that? You may feel, you may feel very peaceful. You may even feel like you have peace with God. You might sleep very well at night thinking you have feeling that you have peace with God. But do you? Do you have peace with God? Has God made peace with you? Do you actually stand at peace with God? The words of Isaiah speak of turning war to peace, not just a peaceful feeling. And so Emmanuel, Jesus came to actually make peace. And it says that he made peace by the blood of his cross. So I want to say a word to the unbelieving guests or maybe unbelieving children here. If you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, in his death for your sins and resurrection from the dead, 
If you've not trusted that to reconcile you to God, to make you God's child, then it doesn't matter how peaceful you feel. You do not have peace with God. The weapons of God's anger are not replaced with blessing for you. You remain God's enemy, even if you don't feel like it. But dear Christian, if your faith is in Christ alone, then no matter how you feel, anxious or restless, not at peace, no matter how you feel, if your faith is in Christ alone, you do have peace with God. Because the peace that Emmanuel gives is not merely a feeling, oh, it is often a feeling, but it is a new reality to enjoy. The first time that Jesus came, he came to bear the sins of his people. And the second time, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And by doing so, he will remove all of the suffering from the world. He will remove all the sorrow and pain and sin and lies and despair and sickness and fear. And so right now we enjoy the presence of God in the presence of our enemies. Think about Psalm 23. But when he comes, again, he will, we will enjoy his presence, not with the presence of his enemies, but in the fullness of joy. We have peace with God, but one day we will have peace with God in a place perfectly suited to enjoy the peace with God. The fourth point is the gospel rests on a single man. The gospel rests on a single man. God has already said he's going to do this. He's already said four. He's going to do, he's going to, he's going to crush. Uh, he, he's going to get, get rid of his wrath and, the, and the, the punishment. How is God going to do this? Let's look at verse six of Isaiah nine. For to us, a child is born to us. The son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor. Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace thus far. Every religion other than the gospel, every religion rests on the shoulders of many men and women. Every single religion rests on the shoulders of many women and men. It rests, the hope rests on their followers. It rests on their worshipers. If you can live a good enough life, if you can kill enough enemies, if you can pay enough money or sacrifices, even atheistic hedonism, it rests on your shoulders to be able to squeeze as much joy and purpose out of life. Even heretical versions of Christianity, where your salvation is based on what God has done in you rather than what God has done for you. But the gospel that Isaiah speaks of rests on the shoulders of a single man. God the Son became a man, he says, for to us a child is born. To us a child is born. He's a man. Did you see that? To us a child is born. He's born to humanity, to the royal family of David. To us a son is given, but this son is also given. He's given by God. He is God. He comes from God. Humanity couldn't produce their own salvation, but they could also not produce their own savior. And so God had to give him. He had to give his own son to us. And the government will be on his shoulder. He shall reign. He shall carry the weight of responsibility to accomplish this peace by himself. He won't just influence it to happen or hope that it happens or say it should happen or tell you how to make it happen. He will execute authority and power and rule to make it happen. He will be sovereign. The full responsibility for the peace of God and the joy of God's people will be put on his authoritative, powerful shoulders. And just like David's first heir, Solomon, he's given throne names. Solomon's, does anybody know Solomon's throne name? Jedidiah, which means the Lord's beloved. Now this son of David also gets, he gets four of them. The first is this mighty God. He is God. He is mighty. He's not just wise. He's not just full of good intentions. He doesn't just want to do good things for his people. 
He is God. That means everything he wants to do for his people, he does for his people. He doesn't just try or want salvation for his people. He is mighty and he is God. He does what he pleases. He brings salvation for his people. He is mighty and he is God. He is the everlasting father. When God uses the word father of himself in the Old Testament in particular, also the New Testament, it speaks of his tender care for the helpless. He is the father to the fatherless. And as you read scripture, you realize, well, that would be absolutely every single person. We are helpless and he is a father and he exercises fatherly authority and care for us. He disciplines his people. He cares for them. He provides for them. He is a good father, but he's also an everlasting father. We spoke of Gideon and Gideon was uh, over Israel in the time of the judges. And do you remember when we went through the book of judges, what was the phrase that kept coming over and over and over again? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Why? Because there was no, no king. And so the people of God cried out, oh, that we would give us a king. Why would they want a king? Because the king would pass on his reign to his son, to his son, to his son. There would be a dynasty, a house, a throne. And why would that be good? Because whatever peace would be accomplished by that king, there is hope and you could maybe have some confidence that it would carry on after his death. That his peace and joy that he wins for his people would outlast him. That he could, he could, it would pass on over and over to his to to the sons on his throne. And what is better than a dynasty where a king could reign over, over God's people like a father and then just pass it on and not be lost? What's better than that? Oh, how about an, uh, an everlasting father? How about a king who everything he accomplishes, he doesn't just pass on to his son and hopefully that son takes after is a chip off the old block but that he reigns forever. So this son of David would be eternal. And he's the prince of peace. He has peace with God. He accomplishes peace with God. And because he is the prince of peace, he administers all that to his people. He gives the peace that he enjoys with God to his people. And so dear friends, if you are in Christ, you enjoy the peace with God that Jesus deserves because he is the prince of peace. Now, how did he make peace with God? Well, it says that he, in 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin, he was perfect, deserving peace with God, enjoying peace with God, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That he suffered as an enemy He was damned for us on the cross. He was treated as an enemy, as we deserve, so that we could be treated as children of God, the way that he deserves it. Friends, salvation rests on his shoulders in his alone. If you are hoping that when you stand before God in judgment, that it will be well with you because you've been a good Christian, Because you've acted peacefully. Because of something about you. Then Christ may not be yours. Because the gospel is a salvation that rests on the shoulders of one man. Not as an example. But as a burden-bearing, sin-carrying Savior. Fifth. Emmanuel's reign in peace will increase until it covers every corner of creation. Read verse 7. Just the first, or uh, all the way up to the very end there. We'll shave a piece off and save it for the last. Isaiah 9 verse 7. A. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Stop there. Sometimes we think of the gospel in terms of Christ being our savior and Christ being our Lord. And this is very true. But 
There's a problem sometimes when we do that, not doing that is actually good, but sometimes when we do that, we mix it up. Because we think Christ being our savior is the good part, the carrot, and Christ being our Lord is the kind of, it sort of like takes back some of it. So, you know, Christ being our savior is a hundred blessing and then he's our, he's our Lord too. So maybe it's a 75, like it, it, it's God's pulling back some of the goodness of the gospel by saying, well, he's also your master. He's also your Lord. He's also your King. This is utter folly. Christ being Lord is not taking away from the goodness of the gospel, not taking away from the joy and sweetness and freedom of the gospel. It's establishing it. Christ does these things because he has authority to do them. He reigns over all things. Christ's Lordship, it doesn't balance the sweetness of of forgiveness. It actually establishes it and secures that. Did you see that? To establish it and to uphold it. That's why he has that authority. There is no peace. There is no freedom without Christ's power. He reigns over all creation to establish and uphold his kingdom. Tim read for us the Great Commission. It says, therefore, go into all the world, make disciples. But what is the therefore, therefore? Why is it that the Great Commission makes any sense? What, what, right, what proceeds right before the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Christ. The Great Commission is, is only possible because of the authority of Christ, that he reigns, he perfectly reigns. That is why there is people in this room praising God for for salvation, for forgiveness, and for the joy of being his children. That's why in the middle of the frozen tundra of Canada, that's why in the, the jungles of Peru, that's why everywhere, The name of the Lord will be praised because he has authority, not in spite of it, but because of it. How does this work out? Christ now has authority over all things. Think of the smallest things. He has has authority over atoms. He has authority over subatomic particles. He has authority over every speck of dust, every gust of wind, every blade of grass, every bird, every single virus, every single raindrop, every single Forest fire, he has authority over Jeff Bezos. He has authority over Derek DeVries, over Justin Trudeau, over Joe Biden, over Elon Musk, over Vladimir Putin, over Boris Johnson. He has absolute, perfect, and total, and utter authority and sovereignty and power over every single thing that happens in the world. He chooses Where you're born. He chooses who your mom is, who your neighbors are, who your doctor would be when you're born. He chooses absolutely every single thing. He's sovereign over the stock markets. He's sovereign over the ground underneath your house that shifts or doesn't shift. He's sovereign over absolutely everything. And that is so good. Because he is our God and he is our savior and the government has been put on his shoulders to establish the joy of of his people, the children who the father gave to him. He just does not just have a desire to do this, friends. He has authority to do it, and he will do it. In John chapter 10, he said he will gather and keep all of his sheep, and none can pluck them from his hand. He does not just have the intention of joy. He has the authority to carry it out. The government rests on his shoulders. The authority of Christ is good news. It's not taking back the good news. It's establishing it and making it sure. Our last point, we're just stealing that little bit of the verse that we shaved off there. Isaiah 9, 7b. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What does zeal mean? Well, here it actually means jealous love. The jealousy of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Lord of hosts is getting at his power and his authority. Nothing's going to stop this guy from doing this, this man from doing this. 
But then we're also talking about that jealousy. And when we talk about jealousy, we often think about jealousy in terms of like, if, you know, my brother gets something for his birthday and I don't, I'm jealous. I don't like it that he gets a good thing. I don't like it. That's not what the Bible's talking about here when it talks about jealousy. This is talking about the jealous love of a husband for a wife. And the proper jealous love of a husband for a wife is not, I'm upset when good things happen to her. It's that I am hers and she is mine. And I would not tolerate somebody trying to get in between us. And God is the husband of Israel. The church, it says, is the bride of Christ. And dear friends, if he were not jealous for his bride for all those given to him before the foundation of the world, elected before them to make up the bride. If he were not jealous, he would have been, he would have tolerated us going to other gods and being destroyed along with them. It is good news that he is jealous. Now, Hollywood treated us to a slap this last week of a man pretending to care about the honor of his wife. But this man is very famous we're declaring the goodness of an open marriage. How ironic that this zealousness is the exact opposite of the Lord God of Israel, who will tolerate no rivals. And he will make sure he uses his authority to keep his bride, to hold her through the darkness, to make sure she lasts in the darkness so that he will bring her to glory and nothing will stop him from doing that because it rests completely and only and utterly on his shoulders and he will do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that to us a child is born and to us a son is given and that the government rests on his shoulders and Lord that he is God and he is everlasting and he is father and that he is zealous and powerful to save and keep this little remnant of a lamb's ear that has now spread over all of creation. Lord, let us rejoice in his sovereignty and let us not be fools to think that we could somehow carry the weight of salvation, even a little, a little piece of it on our shoulders. Lord, would you humble us and make us very glad to confess that our salvation rests on Christ alone. And so then be glad that he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And Lord, I pray that as we are waiting for glory, which will certainly come, that you would keep us through the suffering and trials, even enjoying you through them because you are with us. And that we would continue to confess that Jesus is Lord. I pray that you do this in us in Jesus' name. Amen.